This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name's Roland Clark, and I'm here today on the New Books Network talking to Dr. Chris Millington, who is Reader in Modern European History at Manchester Metropolitan University. Chris has written extensively about the history of fascism, violence, and 20th century France. He's published a staggering 11 books in the past 11 years, as well as numerous journal articles and book chapters. So Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Um, Chris, Every other book on terrorism that I've ever read starts with this long discussion about the definition of what terrorism is, but yours doesn't. So how do you, how do you approach terrorism in this book? Yeah, I think you're right that it seems to be something in the field that uh, scholars of terrorism have to first tackle this issue of definition before they do anything, and that goes for books and, and journal articles because uh, within the field of terrorism studies, famously or infamously it's it's difficult to define terrorism so there's, there are hundreds of different definitions out there and there have been attempts at consensus definitions which um haven't really worked the the thing that i wanted to do in the book was rather than define terrorism in the present so what what do i think it is and then project that back onto the past what the approach of the book is really to ask what did people in France between these years what did they think terrorism was because it doesn't really matter what I think it was from my point of view the approach is asking when they read the word terrorism or or heard about terrorist attacks what what things came to mind and in fact I begin the book by asking the reader what what comes to the reader's mind when they think of terrorism what sorts of images and I make the point that we we all think we know what terrorism is when we hear about it or or read about it in the news but we don't often question where that knowledge comes from it conjures up lots of different images so the the point of approaching the terrorism in the book without a definition was really to ask what what were the things that came to the minds of French people uh, living at this time now I do offer a very minimal definition of terrorism in the introduction to the to the book but the and I kind of only did that because I wanted to appease people who might criticise the book by by say by accusing me of not defining the subject that I claim to be researching, which was a criticism of a book that I wrote on the history of fascism in France, in which I didn't define fascism, and some some subsequent reviewers criticised me <laughs> for, for not doing that, um, even though that wasn't really the point. Uh, of the book um and so so when i was writing this book on terrorism 
it was very firmly fixed in my mind that I didn't want to tell these people in the past what terrorism was. And I certainly didn't want to categorize anything as terrorist. So I use this approach, which is part of a, what's called a critical approach in this field of terrorism studies, in which we ask questions of labels that are used and we ask questions of the, the labeling process. So who who is calling what terrorism and why are they using these words? Um, and I call this a, a cultures of terrorism approach. So essentially looking for the values and the meanings that people read into terrorism, how they interpreted terrorist attacks according to these values and meanings and how, how this in fact changed over several decades between the, the turn of the century and, and the Second World War. I found it interesting, actually, at one stage you comment that the French didn't have a law against terrorism until 1940 because they couldn't work out how to define it themselves. Yes, and that was, that was in fact, true internationally. So th there were lots of discussions uh, at a very high uh, level legally between lawyers from, from different nations in the 1930s about how can we define terrorism, how can we define this and other what they call crimes against civilization so things like slavery and, and genocide and uh, and piracy but there was no actually uh, there was no actual crime of terrorism in france uh, there was the crime of anarchism coming from the the late 19th century anarchist attacks in france the, this uh, the, there were several laws passed defining anarchist crimes as uh, as criminal rather than political crimes, but there wasn't really anything, other, or terrorism wasn't mentioned in, in French law, and it's actually only the Vichy regime uh, in the 1940s that brings the crime of terrorism uh, onto onto the French statute book. So uh, again, it didn't seem right to define something and then label people in the past as terrorist when they actually didn't have a legal definition of it themselves. Mm, it makes a lot of sense. Um, before we get to talking about your case studies, can you tell us a bit more about your sources? So you've got a lot of archival material like police reports and court cases, court records, but the narrative's overwhelmingly driven by these what French newspapers had to say about terrorism between about 1904 and 1944. Why do you care so much what newspapers thought? <laughs> Good question. Um, yeah, I think there's, there were two reasons when I was thinking about what sources to use. Firstly, there's practical reasons, and then secondly, intellectual, well, what I might call intellectual reasons. So so practically, the the sources, the newspaper sources are accessible online. That's a big, that, that was a, a big part of why I chose to lean so heavily on press sources, because the, there's the, the website of the French National Library, has digitized thousands of newspapers there and they, they have another site uh, as well which is a subscription site which has even more uh, media on there and so so partly it's to do with accessibility um now i do use archival sources um which i collected on, on several trips to france but because the my interest was in what did what did people think terrorism was i thought that the it the the archival sources come from the police and the government, so that might tell me a bit about what the police and the government officials were thinking about when they were when they were discussing terrorism amongst themselves. But I suppose what I was trying to do was get at what 
and this is really difficult. It's difficult for, for every historian. What did the average person think something was? Which is a, a an unanswerable question, really. And I, I think we can only answer it, it it as best we can. And I thought that if I if I look through the French press, then um, each time it mentions terrorism and terrorists, that might reveal something about what not only what did the journalist or the editor think it was, but they're also writing with their audience in mind and so they can't really write anything that is outlandishly untrue about terrorism or doesn't necessarily fit with what people who are reading these things think it is so I thought that was maybe quite a good way of trying to get into how the average person thought of it I I think in support of that is the fact that there there were millions of uh, copies of newspapers printed every day and I actually outline the sources that I use uh, in the introduction. And so I thought I could get a, quite a good overall view of the way people were using this word, the sorts of people that this word was being applied to, and and the, the things that people thought terrorists did and didn't do and the, and the way they behaved. Um, now, practically as well, uh, from that point of view, it was. It's very easy to do keyword searches on digitized documents. So, because I was interested in the label terrorism and terrorists, it was very simple just to search for those, and and it comes up with all all these results for me to to look through. So, it took a lot of the the legwork out of it. I'm not quite sure how I would have done it in the days before digitized newspapers. Really, it certainly would have taken a lot more time, um, but. They're kind of the two reasons why I I focus so much on the press. To add to that as well, there's this idea in terrorism studies that the media plays a great role in the way people today think about terrorism. So there's the the notion of what's called media framing. This is where the average person gets their information about terrorism from. And, And it goes back to what I said in answer to the previous question. We have a lot of assumed knowledge about terrorism. For example, if I asked um, a member of my family, "Can you describe a terrorist?" they would give they would they would give me the description of a terrorist, but they don't have any academic background in studying terrorism, or they don't have any idea about where terrorists really come from or uh, what sort of person they really are. And then if you ask them, "Well, how do you know that?" they they kind of just say, "Well." It, well, it's just common sense, isn't it? It's obvious, but I think the real answer is they've absorbed it through media uh, and 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 the press and the and the, the news and social media and all those sources. So that's why I rely so much on the press because I thought it was the best way of trying to understand what did someone think this was in the past. Nice. Um, and your your narrative is organised around a series of six case studies which you use as a way of showing how the concept of terrorism evolves. I'd like to read the first sentence of chapter one because it's just so good. Um, you write, in the early morning, in the early afternoon of the 3rd of May, 1906, Russian emigres Alexandra Sokolov and his comrade Vladimir Strija were walking in the Bois de Vincennes when Strija's trousers exploded. You argue that whereas the French press used the words terrorist, nihilist and anarchist, almost interchangeably between about 1860 and 1904. By the time that Stridge's trousers exploded, the word terrorism did have a fairly precise meaning. Um, 
So what did the French think of when they used the word terrorism in the decade before the First World War? Yeah, I think that is a good example. Um, and uh, it's a, that incident of the exploding trousers. Um, the, it, it, the reason I, I thought that was a quite a striking way to begin the chapter, but then the rest of the paragraph describes this guy's injuries, which were terrible. Um, and so uh, I think it's maybe one of the, the things of being a historian of violence is that often the, well, the goriest examples are the ones that you think you're going to grab the reader's attention with, with the most. Um, but he, this guy was described using all of these words, so terrorist, nihilist, anarchist. And it spoke to what in the book I call this, this semantic model. Uh, around the use of these phrases, because often when you look at the the press sources of this time, they're used interchangeably without any real precise meaning. Um, so people are described as terrorist nihilists or nihilist anarchists uh, or any any combination of those three words. And this is because the, the way people use these phrases, it was based more on what they thought these things were rather than what we might say that they really were and I know that's problematic to say what what they really were but it was based more on people people's own understandings of these things and these were very imprecise understandings and my really my starting point for looking at the the use of these words and and actually for the project in general was actually an article by uh, a historian called Richard Jensen who wrote about an assassination at the turn of the century and what he found was that after 1904, the word terrorism crops up more and more in the European press and especially the French press. Um, it, and words such as anarchist and nihilist kind of decrease in, uh, it, uh, or, or become less frequent in the press. So, so that was the starting point for the project because I thought, well, what, why did people start using terrorism more? Um, and it's, it's because... Well, I argue it's because of what's happening in, in Russia at this time, at the turn of the century. Now, the Russian example is relevant to the use of terms like nihilism and anarchism as well, because this idea of nihilism um, comes from Russia, uh, from, from Russian literature at the, in the mid-19th century. Interestingly, it's actually when it comes to France or when it spreads beyond Russia, the, this understanding of nihilism, the focus is very much on just it being a byword for wanton destruction. So, so um, it, terror with, without any purpose, which was not actually what nihilism was, but people thought it was that. And so when people in France started talking about nihilism and nihilist, they started to think of things being blown up, people killed. Um, and this is... This is cemented throughout the 1870s by acts of political violence in Russia. So, uh, for example, in 1873, Sergei Netchev writes a revolutionary manifesto that advocates destruction. And this is subsumed into nihilism or ideas about nihilism in France. In 1878, you have the People's Will organization in Russia, which commits uh, acts of political violence and describe themselves as terrorists. So... Um, again, Russian revolutionary politics become, comes to be associated with this me idea of meaningless uh, violence. And then throughout the 1890s in France, you have the exposure of the anarchist, or, or, or uh, sorry, I'm making the mistake myself there, I mean nihilist, <laughs> the exposure of nihilist colonies in Paris. 
where well the press certainly describes them as bomb making factories in in parisian the the garrets of parisian buildings and, and the attics and so you, you have the development of nihilism and anarchism as sort of two sides of the same coin especially when anarchists start start to commit attacks in france in the 1890s um now from the uh the turn of the century Russian political violence is described more and more in the French press as terrorism. So, and and these organisations are described as terrorist uh, organisations. And I think the the big difference I see between the way the French understood anarchism and terrorism was that they thought they understood anarchism as a as a crime, as a criminal act. Um, so it was often said to be a social crime uh, against society. So. Um, this meant that it was not thought of as a political crime. It had no political motive. It was just um, violence for the sake of violence. And that meant you could punish its perpetrators as severely as the law allowed. But but terrorism has a political aspect to it. And that comes from Russia because the Russian terrorists, the French media are reporting back, are committing violence in the name of democracy. They are fighting terrorism itself, the terrorism of the Tsar. And so you see lots of sympathy to these Russian terrorists because they are committing violence in the name of democracy against autocracy, and French Republicans seem supportive of that. Um, And so terrorism is now different to anarchism, and because anarchism, the anarchist wave in France is declining, by the turn of the century, you have this new, what seems like a new type of violence that's being perpetrated in Russia. And the French are trying to understand this. And the name they give to this violence is is terrorism. Um, And you see the the ideas about this reproduced in the press, but also in in cultural productions like novels and uh, and plays and things. Now, Now, the terrorists, although they are treated very sympathetically, they are they are also often framed as very cold ideological warriors um, operating in shadowy underground groups, which we might say is sort of the popular idea of terrorism that persists today. So that was another aim of the book, to to try and trace back the origins of what what the the modern French, and I suppose to many to in many respects, modern Europeans think terrorism uh, is. Um, so that, that, that's what the first chapter does. It tries to tries to show how nihilism and anarchism evolve into terrorism in the French imagination. Um, and it wasn't just, I asked you about newspapers before, but it's not just newspapers that are interested in terrorism in this period. Um, but you point out that terrorists also appeared in plays and novels and movies. What was entertaining about terrorists? I think the answer is, and it sounds strange, is that there was a lot that was entertaining <laughs> about terrorists and terrorism, d- despite what they did, because it was, uh, well, firstly, in terms of the press, the the press in France, well, as today, w- w- tended to sensationalise uh, events. Uh, probably more so uh, than today, where, where uh, there are there's fact checking services and uh, things to hold the press to account. But back then, uh, sensationalism sold newspapers, and that was the the ultimate aim, of course. 
Um, and so the, there were lots of things in reports about terrorism that seemed to be very dramatic or certainly were played up as dramatic by journalists and, and editors and, and very melodramatic. Um, and you see these things uh, in newspaper reports, but also in the in newspapers where the press serialised fictional stories about terrorism. Um, so uh, these would appear over uh, a number of weeks, and uh, and it was a way to get it was a way to win the loyalty of readers. It was a way to get subscribers to the newspaper if you had to buy the newspaper the next day to find out what happened. And terrorism was sometimes a, a subject of these press serializations. Um, but I, di I did also look at novels uh, and plays in which terrorist characters uh, appeared and even early films as well. So there were, there were two types of films available. So there were newsreel films, which could, they either recreated terrorist attacks of the moment or they recreated historical terrorist attacks, so historical assassinations for, for viewers. And, and what, what I argue is that, well, it could be easy for the viewer to conflate the two. What what are they seeing on screen? Is this an actual attack or is this a fictionalised uh, attack? Um, but certainly across these newspapers and plays and novels and films, the, the, there are lots of things that are entertaining. So there is violence. It, I think it, it's pretty uncontroversial to say that violence is entertaining. Um, there's destruction, there's death, there's stories of betrayal. So every now and again, in the French press, a, a story would arise of a Russian police informer who'd been exposed at the heart of a terrorist organisation. So there's stories of spies and traitors, there's conspiracies. There are frequently women characters involved in these terrorist plots, whether it's in the press or, or in novels. And and what the reason I use these is because I thought, well, if I'm looking at what people thought about terrorism and what they imagined it to be, these sorts of cultural productions are quite good to to get at popular notions of of terrorism and the terrorist because they to some extent they have to be believable so you have to have a a criminal or a criminal mastermind who the, the that is not too out there for the the reader to engage with or or to believe and and it also has to chime with current concerns about the world so when I was looking at these these fictional productions about terrorism, I was thinking about a lot about the James Bond films in that the, the villains in James Bond films change according to the politics of the time. So you can look at the, the Cold War Bond films where, of course, the Soviets are the bad guys, but now it's, it's organised crime. Who are the bad guys? I assume in the next Bond films, it will be the Russians again. Um, and so you, in these fictional productions from France, I thought, well, um, these must have to be quite realistic. And also you have terrorist characters in there who explain their course. So that was quite interesting to look at how a fictionalised terrorist was explaining to a French audience what they were doing and why they were doing it. And that possibly spoke to why people more generally thought terrorists acted in the way that they did. Mm, um, because typically the, the terrorist doesn't communicate they relies on the interpretation by the press and everyone else to understand what what they were trying to do um in february 1919 you've got this young man by the name of emile cotton who shoots the prime minister and almost kills him what did the french press make of this 
Yeah, so um, Emile Cartan, he uh, he attacks uh, Georges Clemenceau in, uh, as you say, in 1919, um, and he, he runs after his official car and, and shoots a few shots off and actually shoots Clemenceau in the back. Uh, but but Clemenceau uh, survived. So this was at the time it was seen as a great outrage because Clemenceau was a seen as a hero of the First World War, um, as as having directed the the country to victory, um, and there was also a lot of suspicion that Cotan was perhaps working for Germany because this was still at a time when the the peace settlement had not been finalised, and so some. From some quarters, it was argued, well, is Cotan a German agent? And this this spoke to ideas about terrorism that had developed during the First World War itself, when uh, something called Prussian terrorism, so the, the the terrorization of civilians and civilian populations in occupied territories, was reported in the French press. So it was thought to be a, a very Prussian way uh, of behaving to 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 inflict terror uh, in this way. So the, the, there is this association of Cotan with Germany, but there's also still a look back to the association of terrorists and assassinations with, with Russia as well, because the, the French can still, it's still in their minds that, well, uh, Russians commit assassinations. It's part of Russian political strategy to do this. Um, uh, it's maybe in, some people suggest it's in the Russian psyche or the Russian mentality uh, to do this. And so when... When Cotan is, when when he's arrested and reports first appear in the press, he's actually described as looking like a Russian. So he's said to be very pale, very tall and thin with blonde hair. And uh, several reporters say, well, that he looks like a typical Russian, which must be what people thought Russians looked like at the time. Um, either that or they say he seems like a foreigner. Um, now, he wasn't. He was he was French. Um, it, it, he was he's born in Compiègne uh, in the north of France, but it's for me it was interesting because the immediate reaction was well this is an attempted assassination it's a terrorist attack therefore it must either be Russian or German it can't be French so we see the idea still that terrorism is a foreign act or it's a foreign inspired act or foreign directed act it's certainly it's foreign behaviour. And uh, this is this idea of foreignness that persists is grafted onto more immediate concerns about the post-war era, in which the, there is revolutionary um, developments throughout the continent. So there is, of course, as I've said, the association with Germany because of the war. But Germany is going through its own revolution at this time, revolutionary politics. Um, there is this association with Russia, which goes back to the turn of the century. But of course, we have revolution um, in Russia uh, as well. And so it, the idea of terrorism begins to shift slightly into what I would, uh, of course, they didn't know it at the time, but into what I would call more in, interwar territory and uh, onto more the political terrain of the 1920s. So we're, we're leaving behind the anarchism of the 1890s, we're leaving behind to some extent the Russian politics of the 1910s uh, and the early 1900s. And we're, we're starting to see terrorism adapt itself to, or certainly the label of terrorism, adapt itself to more immediate post-war concerns. And it's expressed uh, 
in this way through its association with emerging revolutionary politics in Germany and Russia. And Cotin, in, he insisted that he's not German and he's not Russian, but he was a committed anarchist. So what did French people think anarchism was in the days before the Sex Pistols? Um, well, there were, there were several aspects uh, to this, and it, it sort of depends on which sources you look at. So so in that chapter on Cotin, it's quite difficult. If you ask the question, who was Emile Cotin? Um, you can't really answer that. You can only answer who people think he was. And that goes for himself as well, because the sources that, that I consulted include his interrogations and his appearances in court. And he he constructs his own image of who he is, which when you compare it to what the police find out, isn't quite true. And so for, the only way you can arrive at a picture of him is by t- is by looking at these different constructions. So the the press um, the press think that he is this anarchist terrorist, and so when they when they think of anarchism, they begin to think of oh well, they, they, these people are fanatics. They 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 are brainwashed. They um, they are brainwashed by suspicious foreigners. Um, spreading anarchist doctrine. So a couple of these so-called suspicious foreigners crop up in press reports. Uh, for example, a, a Russian uh, who they call Mikhailov, and uh, and there's a, a Spanish man mentioned uh, who is said to have duped Cotan into becoming a, an anarchist. The the press also think back to the time of the 1890s when the idea of anarchist literature. Um, being dangerous was very current. So the the anti-anarchist laws of the 1890s target anarchist propaganda. Um, They target anarchist newspapers. And it's much like, I think it's much like today when we think that, or certainly it's suggested that people might become radicalised by reading something online. It's it's the fault of the literature that that tricks these people into becoming terrorists. And that was the the idea held at the time. Um, They think that he is like lots of anarchists, he's poorly educated, he's easily led, um, and that's why he falls for this, this um, I suppose we could call it po- poisonous anarchist, uh, poisonous anarchist publications. Um, but they also think as well, lo- like lots of anarchists, they think that he's quite monkish, so he lives this Spartan lifestyle, he's committed only to anarchism, he's not interested in women, um, he, he, he has renounced women, uh, for the cause of anarchism. And in fact, that's something he says himself. He says he's uh, ended a romantic relationship because he wants to dev- devote himself to this ideological crusade. Now, when you compare that to what the police found out, um, it's, um, well, it's inter- it, it was interesting as a historian to, to do this research because the, the, the police find out, actually, he's not ce- he wasn't celibate by choice. Um, he was celibate because he had uh, venereal disease um, and that he'd had uh, gonorrhea for 12 months. And that is why his romantic relationship had ended. Um, now, to me, that was interesting because, it, of course, Cartan had rewritten this part of his past, maybe maybe out of embarrassment or maybe um, just to, to, I suppose, exaggerate his credentials as an anarchist. Um, they find that the police find that actually this idea of him as this great anarchist 
thinker and ideologue and, and in the end anarchist assassin is overblown. It's it's created by the press. It's partly created by him as well. So he gives himself an anarchist identity. He calls himself Milu the anarchist. Um, but what the police find out is that actually he's not very well known in the anarchist circles in Lyon, where he'd spent a lot of time, where he said he was converted to anarchism. And uh, he's certainly not known amongst the anarchist associations there. And they find that he's led quite an unstable life up to the point of when he he commits to anarchism and he he has the idea of killing Clement. So, so he has about, I think he has 11 different jobs in 11 months before he becomes his anarchist uh, member. And... Uh, and much like modern radicalization or ideas of modern radicalization, I think that is the most interesting part of it because it seems to be the instability in professional and personal life that lead people to these ideologies rather than the ideologies, uh, rather than them finding their way to the ideology just because they are committed to its ideals. So um, it was a very interesting case study and had something to say about contemporary understandings of radicalization, although I do recognize that that's a very controversial concept in itself. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Mm, particularly with all the talk about incels these days. Uh, yes, um, yes. So jumping forward a bit, in May 1932, you've got this man named um, Paul Gorgolov who kills the French president, Paul Dumier. You argue that the killing of Dumais marks a moment of transition in representations of the terrorist phenomenon in France. What do you mean by that moment of transition? Well, it, it relates to something I said in, in response to the earlier question, in that the uh, because I'm looking at the way terrorism evolved, it's, it, it's with, or the way the label evolved, it, it's with this killing of President Dumais in 1932 that, again, we see contemporary concerns become becoming invested in understandings of terrorism. So, so Gorgulov killed uh, Paul Duba in May 1932, and he, he himself alleged to be the leader of a Russian fascist organisation. And he said he had targeted the French president because France had allowed the Soviet Union to come to power and, and was doing nothing to, to oppose it. And he thought that in targeting the office of the French president, he could change this. Now, there were lots of questions at the time asked about Duma's mental health and what was he uh, insane, to use the, the, the contemporary terminology. Um, that was that was put to one side, though, because people were less interested in, in his, his mental stability and they were more interested in the ideology behind his attack. Um, and this is why I think it's a moment of transition, because it be, it starts to become clear that terrorism is now grounded squarely in the interwar or, 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 or on the battlefield of interwar politics. So he, Gorgulov 
is not assumed to be a German terrorist anymore uh, or, a, uh, or a Russian revolutionary attacker, as, as Kotan was assumed to be in 1919. Um, he's, he's perceived by the right on French politics to be uh, actually directed by the Soviet Union um, as, as a kind of act of what we might call state-sponsored terrorism um, uh, against France. And, and in fact, the, the French Minister of the Interior, André Tardieu, immediately says to the press, this is a, a, an act of Bolshevik terrorism. Now, he jumps the gun a bit there because then it comes out that Duma says he's a fascist. Um, <laughs> but ne nevertheless, the right-wing press and right-wing politicians don't go back on this. They, they claim that this is a Soviet-sponsored act, um, that the French Communist Party is in league with Moscow, um, and they link it to other, as other examples of communist revolutionary violence in, in the Soviet Union. Um, and so, so you have this very what I would call a very much a 1930s reading of this act of violence by right-wingers uh, in France. Um, again, it, they don't care whether he's... Uh, well, well, they do care whether he's insane or not, because what they argue is that he's actually not insane, he is a political assassin. So I make the point in the book that this is, what, this is one instance where people are trying to argue that terrorists are not mad because there is a political agenda behind blaming the terrorist with or, or by transposing the ideology of your enemy onto the terrorist. So conservatives say he's a communist. The Communist Party deny this and the Soviet part, uh, Soviet Union deny this too. They actually say he is a white Russian agent. So he is a, he's a, one of these right-wing white, right white Russians who's been expelled or exiled from the Soviet Union. And he is uh, uh, an agent provocateur trying to uh, foment a war between France uh, and the Soviet Union. Now, wh whatever politics each side describes to Gorgulov, the interesting point for me is that the the assassin or the, the terrorist at this time is still perceived to be a foreigner, still perceived to be at the, what at the time they called this fifth column in the country, the enemy within um, epitomised either in this communist subversive or, or a nationalist Russian emigre. Um, and, and so this, again, is a moment of transition because you start to see, uh, one, well, you, you still see the association of the terrorist with being foreign, but you start to see the beginning of the terrorist as a foreign political actor, someone who is committing violence in France and against France, but at the behest of an enemy foreign power. So, so that's that's different to the way people understood it in the early 19th century, uh, sorry, the late 19th century and the early 20th century. Uh, and it's something that comes to dominate perceptions of the phenomena in France later in the decade. Um, the other thing that people were interested in Gorgulov for was that he apparently had a very alluring blonde female accomplice. Why is it that Attractive blondes keep appearing in almost every chapter in this book. Yeah, it does. It, it is something that struck me when I was doing my research, and uh, that seemed strange at first. That um, in in lots of these cases, there is either a very beautiful blonde woman involved, or there are other women involved who are described as uh, devastatingly beautiful, um, or or in other cases I look at, they they have been very beautiful 
uh, in the past. And uh, the, I, I still remember when I was doing the research and writing this, I suddenly think, well, well, was terrorism sexy? Was it meant to be sexy at this time? What's the, why is there a sex appeal to terrorism? That I would say, well, I would argue it is absent today. No one would really think of including kind of a, a sexualized figure in, in terrorism today, I don't think anyway. Um, and so we, we have this blonde woman in the Gorgulov case who is almost certainly made up. Uh, I think that she, she crops up in a couple of sources, um, but the, but but nothing. There's nothing more substantial. Then you have um, an attractive blonde, also allegedly attractive blonde, in uh, the Marseille assa- assassination of King Alexander of Yugoslavia in 1934, who um, is a, a female member of the terrorist group who smuggles the guns for the assassination into France and subsequently escapes and that that is very important to her story because because of the fact that she is never caught her identity is never revealed she's she just becomes this very enigmatic figure often referred just to as the mysterious blonde and there are lots of salacious uh, musings in the press about what her real role in the in the organization was was she actually the leader of the the terrorist uh, squad was she there to, to fire the men up, uh, one one reporter suggests in very barely concealed innuendo, um, and uh, and then later on in 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 the case studies that I look at, there are other um, sex I suppose sex symbol terrorists uh, who who crop up. Now I think this this can be explained for if we. Uh, or, or from a few few angles, or from a, a few there are a few points of view on this. Well, firstly, it's the era of the femme fatale in cinema. So, um, at this time in France in the 1930s, you have Greta Garbo playing Mata Hari uh, in a, in a popular film, which is in cinemas. You also have the femme fatale being a, a, a figure, a long-established figure, in uh, in novels too. And so, it's almost like to have a terrorist storyline, you need a woman character in the plot. It seems to be an essential part of the plot. Um, and I use that phrase very, or that word very, very deliberately because it's sometimes it's difficult to sit, to distinguish where fact and fiction leave off, uh, or, or or fact and fiction blare a lot in these stories. So that might be the first reason. The second reason might be that female terrorists. Um, they were still thought of to be very unusual. Um, now, this is this is based in very gendered ideas about what the role of women or what role women should play in politics and society. So, women aren't at this time. Women aren't meant to be involved in politics. They they can't vote in France, let alone take any sort of political action, violent political action. Anyway, um, they are they are not seen to be natural terrorists. So. Therefore, the, the the gender attributes of these women make them fascinating oddities, um, despite the fact that women have long taken part in terrorist organisations going that have been uh, in, uh, in the French consciousness since the late 19th century, particularly Russian terrorist organisations. Um, but at the time, people were still surprised that this might be the case. So she becomes an object of fascination. Um, and I think... Um, 
I think that's the third reason we might uh, explain this is again linked to this this fascination um, is that women are just thought to be just so um, peculiar in terrorist movements, unusual, and it's still the case today. So um, terrorism study scholars have argued that women, for example, women suicide bombers attract far more media attention than male suicide bombers. There are lots of... Uh, uh, there's lots of work on uh, women uh, terrorist groups such as the Chechen Black Widows. And uh, in Britain, I suppose there was a lot of fascination with the case of Shamima Begum, who went over to be a so-called ISIS bride. Um, and it, it speaks to ideas that were held, that are held today about women in terrorist organisations and, and uh, were held back in uh, 19, the 1930s in France too, that women in terrorist, in terrorist groups, they they can't be normal women. They're, they they can only either be monsters, uh, unnatural, or as some terrorism studies uh, researchers have written, they are they are framed as whores in, in terrorist groups. That's why they are there. So um, I think they're an essential character in the terrorist storyline um, because of their sex appeal, but also because they're just thought to be so unusual. Um, so just then you mentioned... The, the killing of King Alexander I in Marseille in October 1934. Um, and this guy, he's, he's foreign, he's Croatian, which is what you expect a good terrorist to be. Um, but he's not a communist or an anarchist. He's actually very clearly a fascist. So what did the French press make of this? Um, well, I'm going to pick you up on something there. He's not Croatian. <laughs> he's, uh, That's true. He's actually, he's actually Bulgarian, Macedonian. Um, but he's working for a Croatian uh, terrorist organisation. Um, that doesn't really matter to the French at the time. Though he's, as you say, he's foreign. Um, he's working for this uh, this organisation, the Ustasha, who uh, we could describe as fascist. I wouldn't describe as fascist, but I won't get into that. <laughs> um, and this uh, this group is uh, a Croatian group who wants uh, or is fighting for independence from Yugoslavia, so fighting what it, it sees to be the Serbian establishment. So they they use this guy, Petrus Kellerman, uh, to assassinate the king uh, in Marseille. Um, now, Petrus Kellerman is the name on his passport, but he's actually revealed to be, or to have several identities, really. He's Vladimir Chernozemsky, um, he also known, known as Vlado the chauffeur. Uh, he's a he's a what we might call a professional assassin, I suppose, working for the the in, internal Macedonian revolutionary organization, which is an ally of the the Croatian Ustasha. His real identity seems to be Dimitri. Uh, he's called Dimitri Kerin uh, from Bulgar from the Bulgarian part of Macedonia. Um, he is. He is lent to the Ustasha for the purpose of this assassination. And the Ustasha and the IMRO and Karen uh, are generally uh, work with Italy, with Italian funds, with Italian weapons. And so um, this is actually what, what we would understand today as an act of international state-sponsored terrorism, I would argue, although the extent to which the Italian government knew that it was going to happen. I don't think it's clear cut. However, they provided 
the money and the weapons that the Eustachia spent and used to, to commit the attack. Now, the politics of the group of the Eustachia, it, it, jars, it jars with traditional understandings of terrorists as, as revolutionaries, um, because they this is very, very much an act of fascist or right-wing terrorism. However, the left-wing press, of course, don't let anyone forget this. They, uh, they home in on the fact that this is a fascist act of terrorism and that they, they say that, well, this is the way European fascists operate. The, uh, Karen or Kellerman is, the, is uh, a warning sign or a warning to, to everywhere else that this is what fascists do. Um, if you're not on the left in France, the politics of the group is sort of put to one side and the terrorists are framed instead as fanatics, um, as uh, fanatics. And, and we have the femme fatale of the, the mysterious blonde. We have the description of this, uh, this assassination as being the result of a huge international plot committed by professional terrorists who have terrifying means at their disposal they operate through an international network of spies and agents they could strike anywhere at any time there's no stopping them this is this is really because the attack is so unexpected and seen as so shocking that that it is said that well nowhere nowhere can be safe from such a group um, and i'd say the important thing now is that terrorism in France at this time is now straightforwardly political. It's directed from abroad, whether it's Italy uh, or Germany or, or Moscow. It's committed by foreigners who are acting on French soil. So there are no French people involved in this assassination. However, France is the theatre uh, of the attack. It's state-sponsored and it's it's committed by vast international networks with um, hugely powerful uh, means that they're disposable that everyone should be afraid of and I think that's interesting because we've moved very far from what the French originally thought terrorism, terrorism was in the, the late 19th century and we've moved on to the terrain of the 1930s but if you extract the specifics of the 1930s politics from the attack we you have language used that is very reminiscent of the language that is used to describe terrorism today. So um, committed by foreigners in vast networks, no one is safe. You never know where they're going to strike. It's almost impossible to stop them. Um, it's political um, or there is a, a religious political end to it. Um, and, and so this is quite a good example of where we see I would argue the foundations of contemporary ideas of terrorism that, that are just then built upon in later decades. And of course, also on the right, the most famous terrorist group in interwar France were the Kagul, um, who really make their mark in 1937. So how did the Kagul change the way that French people thought about terrorism? Well, to some extent, they, they didn't, because the Kagul were a French group and they, before I go into explaining them, the, the, the upshot of it is that they, the existence of a French terrorist group is thought to be so unusual and so, uh, so impossible that uh, it can't be true. 
Um, they, we can't have French terrorists. French people don't commit terrorists. They um, uh, uh, don't commit terrorism. At the time, terrorists are, as I explained, thought to be foreigners. So this can't be terrorism. The, the French cannot be terrorists. Um, now, the Cagoule, is, it, it's, a, it's an extreme right-wing group that grows out of the very fertile ground of the extreme right-wing extra-parliamentary groups in the 1930s known, known as the League. So the, the nucleus of the Cagoule's leadership emerges from the Action Française, which is a, a, an anti-Semitic extreme right-wing league, which is actually banned by the French government in 1936. And these very... And this nucleus of very violent activists get together. Um, often they uh, they have familial connections or they are connected through the same social networks. And they found this underground group, this secret revolutionary underground group, popularly known as the Cagoule, which commits a series of, of attacks throughout France in 1936 and 1937. They, they plant plant bombs on, on trains in the south, some of which kill a, a handful of people. They, they also commit attacks on the orders of the Italian government in return for money uh, and weapons. So the most famous, famous example is the killing of the Ital anti-fascist Italian Roselli brothers in France. Um, and uh, the, the Cagoule also uh, perpetrated bombing in Paris in September 1937. Um, they are subsequently then exposed. Um, the police have had their eye on the Cagoule for a long time before their exposure, but the police have been happy and the Ministry of the Interior has been happy to just let them operate until they do something that threatens the state. And um, this threat to the state comes in November 1937 when the, the organisation tries to mobilise an insurrection against the Republic with its friends in the army. Now the, the insurrection fails because the friends in the army aren't prepared to act. Um, they, they, don't take the, the, they don't take the bait that the Cagoule offers them because the Cagoule says there is about to be a communist revolution and we need to, to act now. And so this group is then exposed by the Minister of the Interior, Marx Dormois, as a terrorist organization. And the press is then full of the discovery of arsenals throughout Paris of underground prison cells that have been constructed to hold various ministers and of um, the, the arrest of all these um, leaders and acolytes uh, belonging to this group. Now, the fact that this was a French terrorist group means that some people don't take it seriously. Um, now, we could explain this with reference to the idea that, well, terrorism is foreign, so these can't be terrorists. And that, that is um, an, an explanation offered. So some people argue in the press, well, maybe they are a bit like terrorists, but they're like foreign terrorists and they are just copying foreigners. So are they really French? Well, no, they're just uh, imitators. The Cagoule, however, also has right-wing uh, or friends in the right-wing press that are determined to trivialise what they've been doing because they don't want to have the full force of the law come down on them. And so the right-wing press launches a campaign to minimise the seriousness of the violence and minimise the seriousness of their intention. And they, to be honest, their intention was to overthrow the Republic and install 
an, it- an Italian-style fascist regime in France. But the press is, does quite a good job of convincing people that this isn't really what they wanted, that they were just play-acting, that they were cranks and fanatics. And they, they, they don't actually face any sort of punishment, uh, really. And the Vichy regime releases the, the main Cagoulard leaders uh, during the 1940s. So to some extent, it does change the way people think about terrorism in that it's, it raises the possibility that French people could be terrorists. But to another extent, it, it just solidifies what people already think in that French people can't re- be real terrorists because that's just not what French people do. Um, and finally, he finished the book with a kind of an epilogue which looks at the Vichy regime. So what happens to the image of the terrorist under Vichy? Well, the Vichy regime, as we mentioned at the the beginning um, is the is the first regime to bring terrorism, the, the word terrorism, into French law. Now, the the regime classifies resistors as as terrorists. So that's that's pretty unsurprising, really. Particularly once the the Communist Party in France starts committing violent attacks in France from from mid nineteen forty two. So the Vichy regime frames these terrorists much in the same way that. The, the French have for about 10 years done so. So these are um, people directed from abroad. It's pretty easy to say that for, for Vichy because you've got Moscow and you've got London um, who they argue are directing these these terrorists. So so again, you can say it's, it's directed from foreign capitals. Um, you can also argue that these people aren't really French. They are traitors. They they have betrayed France either for communism or for de Gaulle, who, who is a traitor. And so you don't really have to do much with this culture of terrorism in the war years to impose it onto the resistors. Um, the resistance is quite worried about this campaign. Um, and we see this in reports um, in, in the resistance press, urging people to combat the propaganda, They're urging people to um, combat these arguments in public. So if they hear someone, overhear someone saying in the queue for, uh, the, for food or, or in, in work, if they hear a colleague saying oh, resi- the resistors are terrorists, they, they ask people to to take up the challenge of the argument of this. So they, and they are quite clear in that they recognize the power of the word terrorism to blacken their reputation, to tarnish the, the no, what they call or consider to be the nobility uh, of their course. And they throw the charge of terrorism back at Vichy and back at the occupier. But once again, they don't really have to do much to this culture of terrorism that's been established in France, because you can pretty straightforwardly argue that Vichy is committing terrorist attacks through its paramilitary police uh, organs. But you can also argue that they're not really French either, that you can argue that they are the puppets of a foreign regime. You can certainly argue that the German soldiers who might be committing violence are foreigners committing terrorism in France. And so... The resistance turns this on its head, um, or turns Vichy propaganda on its head. Um, but it adds something to it, and it it adds to the fact that the this terrorism committed by Vichy and the Germans, this is actually 
committed against France. It's committed against the idea of Republican France. It's committed, um, and this idea emerges towards the end of the war, it's, co it's committed against French Republican democracy. And so when the liberation happens, um, the, the liberation government is in a bit of a, a, a strange situation because it needs to prosecute these people um, who have committed violence in the name of Vichy or in the name of the Germans. Um, it's, it's a wary of amnestying so-called these terrorists en masse um, because it's very aware of 11th hour resistors. And so um, the, the, the liberation government has a hard time De de dealing with these cases of amnesty and uh, re and also reversing the punishments that Vichy has inflicted on people because the, the liberation government doesn't want to be seen letting these so-called terrorists out of jail. And so these cases are revised in the end on a case-by-case -case basis. But I, I think what, what the, the liberation regime decides is that, and what, what we see solidified as a... I was about to say once and for all, if we can say once and for all as a historian. Um, what we see solidified is the idea that terrorism is an attack by foreigners on, on the Republic, that is an attack by foreigners on Republican democracy. And because the true French in these early post-war years uh, are framed as being Republican supporters of the resistance, terrorism itself is an attack on, on France and its values. And I conclude the book by arguing that, well, this is what we see, um, or this is the same interpretation or representation of terrorism that we see today. So in, in the wake of Islamic extremist attacks in France in, the, in the, the, the 2010s, it's framed as an attack on the Republic, on the universal values of the Republic. And my argument is that we can trace this all the way back to the evolution of French understandings of terrorism in the early 20th century. All of which makes this book incredibly important for anyone that wants to understand French history or terrorism um, or discourse in general. Um, it's such a powerful word because it can mean so many things. So thanks so much for talking us through it. Um, and anyone that wants to find out more, of course, they can go and read the book themselves. Um, but thanks again for coming on the show, Chris. Thank you. Thanks for thanks for having me.